Welcome to MoFo Perspectives, a podcast by Morris and Forster, where we share the perspectives of our clients, colleagues, subject matter experts, and lawyers. Hello, and welcome to the Mo Founders podcast, a podcast that explores the issues that matter to business founders, investors, and emerging companies. My name is Stephen James, and I'm a partner at the law firm Morrison Forster, or MoFo, as we're widely known. Mo Founders was born out of a desire to bring together a community of entrepreneurs, investors, and advisors, and get insights into the challenges and opportunities that come with launching a business. Well, on this episode, I'm delighted to welcome Adam Graham, the founder of JustFix, to the Mo Founders podcast. Adam is an entrepreneur of over 25 years. Now he has founded JustFix, a revolutionary app which aims to disrupt the property maintenance sector by providing users with details of services for reliable, cost-effective tradespeople at short notice. Launched to the public last year, JustFix has now expanded across the whole of the UK and is targeting aggressive growth for 2024. Adam, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So if we just kick off, can you give us a brief overview of your pathway to JustFix and the ex- experience and skills that you acquired in previous uh, ventures that you were involved with that were important to its creation? Sure. Um, so I kind of grew up around the construction industry. My dad ran a building company and uh, my brother went into that that world and is a quantity surveyor. Uh, but I actually didn't follow that path. Um, when I was at university, I founded a forerunner to Spotify uh, in the late 90s, which was called iTunes Radio. And we were the first people to pioneer the concept of music on demand and drag and drop playlists, which became common through Spotify, but I actually sold the business uh, the year before Spotify launched in the early noughties. Um, We were the first people to stream live music from Glastonbury in 2002, which was a technical challenge back then, Um, involved running an ISDN line into a caravan in a field. Um, So really pushing the limits of of technology in those days. Um, And after the experience with the internet radio station, I um, ended up running digital marketing agencies by and large. And then I ultimately ended up running a global public company, which was a group of marketing agencies, um, which involved a fair bit of M&A. So that was really, really useful experience, uh, none of which has got anything to do with the construction sector, of course. Um, and um, yeah, I suppose I was when I left um, the, the, the last big job I had as, as chief exec of this PLC, I wanted to get back to basics. I wanted to kind of feel like I was being entrepreneurial again, like, like, like a, I was in the early days of my career. And I was actively looking for a real world problem to get my teeth sunk into and something that I could apply the experience I'd built up in technology and marketing to. Um, and so I was kind of, you know, looking around for an opportunity. And, um, and one day um, I'd, I'd been for a walk with the family and we got back home. And when we arrived back at the house, we realized we were locked out. And I couldn't believe in today's day and age how antiquated the process of finding a locksmith was. Um, I was stunned at the kind of just the old fashioned um, approach that, that, that all of the kind of um, options available to, to me at the time were taking. And I thought to myself, surely there's an Uber style solution for this type of thing. And to my amazement, it didn't exist. So once I'd finally got into the house and... Um, you know, sat there reflecting, 
that was kind of the light bulb moment. I thought, well, are you sure that 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 thing that I expected to exist doesn't really exist? So I, I spent weeks researching, looking at the competitors, uh, mapping out the different options available. But the thing that I thought should exist in today's day and age, which was kind of tapping into that expected paradigm that we're already used to, to order our taxis, to order our takeaways, um, just wasn't there. So, um, yeah, as I say, that was the kind of light bulb moment that got me got me thinking this could be the thing to get my te- teeth sunk into. Um, I built a low-code prototype myself um, just to test some assumptions to see whether there was a market for this thing, and I managed to get customers and tradespeople interacting in the way that I thought it should be done. That gave me enough validation to um, build a bit of a business case, go and raise a bit of SEIS pre-seed funding, um, and and start the process from there. So yeah, that was how I kind of found myself back full circle, working in a in a you know construction related sector, uh, despite having no experience really, other than spending my my summer holidays working on building sites. Um, the majority of my experience is is technology and marketing. And it's quite a, f- a fascinating journey, almost almost the classic. It sounds like entrepreneur's moment in the sense that you're developing and channeling all these skills that you've applied in different sectors, widely different industries in the past. And now you, you, you're applying it in this in this area where you've identified, as you were alluding to, a specific problem and a, what seems to be the classic gap in the market and effectively applying a an established, as, as you I think you describe a business model, a way of approaching business to perhaps an outmoded sort of industry um so and, and is that it it's effectively it's the sort of quintessential identifying a gap looking at a way to almost revolutionize quite a sort of staid business sector is, is that is that the, the idea and that the ambition yeah i think that's fair uh, i think it's it's not always possible but it's often a fantastic idea if if you can be your own target customer um, and I was kind of, you know, the, my own target customer, you know, I was time poor and in a hurry and, and looking for a fast solution that was as easy as ordering a taxi or a takeaway. And I couldn't believe it didn't exist. And I thought, I can't be the only person who thinks like this. You know, we're all increasingly, um, you know, busy. We've all, we've all, we all expect everything to be super easy and, and at, at the click of a button or the swipe of a thumb. Um, so I thought, well, if if I if I want this to exist, I'm sure I'm not the only one. I did validate that assumption with some some um, you know some research and, and tested various user groups um, about their kind of appetite for this. And universally, um, from a customer perspective, this was wanted and and and, and expected. Frankly, um, in terms of revolutionising things, I mean, the lesson I learned kind of the hard way through. Uh, I choose radio back in the in the early noughties was actually being too early is no good. You know, I did literally what Spotify are doing now, but in the days of narrowband internet, when 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 the whole kind of way people approached the internet was very different in those days. People didn't have typically internet connections at work. It was totally unheard of to kind of be plugged into your computer listening to the radio whilst you were working. Um, you know, there wasn't the broadband. Um, internet ubiquitous like like it is now so the the kind of the world was a different place back then so even though the idea of creating a a a music on demand drag and drop playlist from a diverse range of genres seemed like a good idea um we were too early um and 
So being too early is as, as, as bad as being too late in many respects. And the thing that kind of attracted me to the Just Fix opportunity is I don't think we're too early at all. I'm, I'm Frankly, I'm stunned no one's really done it already um, because we do have parallel versions of this in different sectors. Um, and so therefore, we're, we're pushing on an open door. We're tapping into an expected paradigm that customers are very, very used to and we're just applying it to a different vertical. So that felt like an opportunity uh, and one that wasn't, you know, we're not exactly revolutionizing the sector. We're modernizing it. We're bringing it up to date. We're applying technologies that are tried and tested to a different vertical. And it sounds like timing seems to be everything. I think that from my experience of dealing with entrepreneurs, it's, it's such a critical factor. I think you're alluding to that you can sometimes be too early. You know, the market might not yet be ready for it. And it's, it's quite an interesting dynamic because there are obviously websites out there that offer ways of connecting with tradespeople. But um, as you say, it, it doesn't seem to do it in perhaps a way that is as responsive in some circumstances as you, as you might like. And I, and I certainly uh, can empathize with the point around the time poor, busy people who just want the problem to be sorted out, just fixed, I suppose. And so is, do you think the USP really is about buying time, convenience, speed? Is, is that how you would how you would pitch it? Yes, just fixes positioning is with the fastest, most trusted. I believe that speed is the strategic high ground. Um, there are lots of other ways of procuring a tradesperson, um, and you know they're all subtly well, they're all subtly different from what we do. That you can kind of group them into common themes among themselves. Um, you've got the recommendation sites and the aggregator solutions the lead generation sites and and, and unmanaged marketplaces. You want to just pull open your phone, open an app and um, press a button and get it booked. Um, And and, and that's the space we're operating in. What we do is we take the pain away for a customer. You tell us where you are, you tell us what you need. And then our matching algorithm finds the most appropriate fixer in that moment, books them, sends them on their way uh, and we deal with everything else. So it's a much more streamlined solution than the alternatives. So you've identified the market opportunity um, and how you would position it, and all of that makes sense. I think the proposition comes across very clearly and strongly. So once you've done that, how do you go through to creating and launching an app? And for example, like how do you manage to find the trades people? How do you start building your customer base? Because it's it's whilst you can see the opportunity and the vision, the practical implementation, I would have thought, would have been quite challenging. So what sort of challenges did you face? Was there there anything that was particularly unexpected that you found found harder to achieve than others in terms of getting an app off the ground and getting it launched? Yeah. um, And and, and I think as, as I really got into it, I started to appreciate maybe why no one had done this before <laughs> because it it does seem like a really good idea and, and a kind of no-brainer from a customer perspective but there's clearly additional complexity in getting something off the ground and there's additional complexity to delivering the sort of service that we're delivering versus for example a taxi driver who all they all they really need is a driving license and the ability to read a sat nav and they can you know become an uber driver whereas obviously if we're applying trades that have more skills more uh, qualifications and experience required and a variety of those skills 
there's additional operational complexity there. And as I got into it, I realized it was, yeah, um, there was, there was, there was some tricky hurdles to, to, to overcome. Um, and, and then it was the kind of classic cold start problem. It's a two-sided marketplace. When you're starting from nothing, you've got, you've got no one on the supply side and no one on the demand side of the, of the marketplace. And you have, you have this kind of chicken and egg quandary. How do you build it? And, and where do you start? Um, well, clearly, we don't have any supply side. We don't have a business. So that was, that was where we started. And, and, and we said to ourselves, we want to get 500 fixers, as we call them, the tradespeople on our platform before we get a single customer so that that first customer has plenty of choice. And so we can deliver on the, the real-time opportunity and the speed that we want to um, demonstrate through our platform. So we went off and got 500 fixers signed up um and then we drove customers in through paid search and you know, the good news is there's there's people searching for urgent high intent search terms up and down the country every minute of every day so there's plenty of demand there the challenge is having the supply having the technology to be able to efficiently deliver against that demand and and acquiring those customers at a cost effective price um but then it's a, then it's then it's a flywheel, you know. Then so okay, let's get our first five hundred fixers. Let's let's drive in our first customers, give them a really good experience, give the fixers a really good experience. Repeat, go and get more fixers, go and get more customers, expand the geographical footprint, and through that process, you're introducing stress into the system. You're highlighting the areas that need more work on the technology and the operations and the processes. But by doing it in an agile way, you can kind of test and learn and iterate and keep moving forwards. And that's what we've been doing. And with the fixers point, so quite interested by that, because given that this is, you know, I think by, by, by your own admission, it's an industry that need, that was almost this, this kind of business model was overdue. Was it quite hard to find those fixers, rec to recruit them, given that I, I imagine they would be, or at least some of them would be accustomed to operating in a certain manner and perhaps being very independent rather than being affiliated with any kind of platform or app? How challenging was that in terms of, I guess, the onboarding process and making them understand the appeal of, of something like just fix yeah i mean i think part of the opportunity is also part of the challenge here which is that um some of the tradespeople out there aren't necessarily hugely technically savvy some of them might be quite stuck in their ways they're not necessarily fantastic at communication these are all opportunities for us to to deliver against and to to give our customers a better experience but they're also challenges in terms of setting up the right expectations with the fixers that we bring on board. Some of them say, well, I'm busy. You don't need any more work. Okay, fine. You know, you're exactly the sort of fixer we need. That means, that means you're good. You know, so you can turn the objections into, into kind of opportunities for the fixers, but ultimately it's not right for everyone. Um, and it's kind of a numbers game to just, you know, get in front of enough fixers so that you can find the ones who it does appeal to. It's free to be on the platform. We don't charge them for leads. We simply add a markup to their labor costs so that we're earning money when they're earning money and they don't have to pay a penny if they're not earning anything through us. So our interests are fully aligned and it's kind of a no-brainer for a fixer as well. Why wouldn't you be on a platform that gives you the opportunity to top up any lulls in your schedule? Uh, say you've been let down by a customer, all of a sudden you've got Friday looks clear, 
um, you know, this just gives you the opportunity to take some jobs on a Friday. There's no obligation to accept a job. All we ask is if you do accept a job, you know, you, you abide by our terms and you, you do what you say you're going to do. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's really as simple as that. So once we get through to the people who actually want to hear the offering, um, the vast majority are very, very interested in it. And, and then it's just a case of finding the ones who become highly engaged. It's kind of like an, an engagement funnel. So at the very top, they might give it a go. Some of them decide it's not for them. Some decide they like it. And then they do more jobs. And then, you know, a smaller subset of those become highly engaged and, and it becomes their primary source of income and, the, you know, their, their favorite way of getting jobs. And it's just a case of continuing to feed the top of that funnel, delivering um, a really good service to our fixers as well as our customers. And, um, you know, as I say, just rinse and repeat. And you've talked through some of the commercial challenges that you've been addressing what about any legal challenges or roadblocks is there has there been anything significant so far or has it been sort of relatively plain sailing touch wood at, at, at the moment yeah i'm always uh hesitant to kind of um <laughs> to jinx it but so far um yeah it's been relatively plain sailing from a legal perspective and i'm sure as soon as i end this podcast i'll have some sort of a legal issue come out of the woodwork as, as, as a result of this but no it's been it's been pretty straightforward you know some of the things we had to look at in the early days were employment law um and and and, and how we structure the marketplace so we don't fall foul of you know ir35 and various other kind of employment related um legislation um which because of the way we're structured actually is is, is not an issue you know we've got we've got fixers who work for us among many, many other people. And, you know, they don't, they don't really fall, fall under a kind of full-time working or a zero hours contract type scenario. So that was, that was one of the things we had to look at. Um, you know, as with any growing business, there's always, you know, um, things that require legal, um, opinion and legal assistance. Um, so yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll always have a need for legal support but so far touch wood nothing too horrendous and i think that's really what i, I guess i wanted to emphasize to, to other founders who are listening here is just the importance of getting the right advice early on things that are absolutely critical to the business and what you've described makes absolute sense in terms of looking at these things properly so when you're launching you're you do it with with your eyes open i suppose um and it sounds like you, you've been doing that um and, and on the um the sort of principles of the business, I understand that part of the aspiration is to develop around equitable and community centric principles. Um, and I was interested to know what exactly you feel that means and how you go about achieving those aspirations, those principles. Yeah. I mean, so I'm a big believer in the power of community, both at a micro level and a macro level, and at a physical level and a kind of you know online level, um, you know, communities coalesce around issues, passions, etc., and they can be really, really supportive. Uh, and I think the beauty of Just Fix is all we're really doing is helping the community to help itself. Uh, we're we're giving people in 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 areas the ability to 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 be a self-employed tradesperson and, and and generate more more work for themselves. And by its very nature, the, the majority of our jobs are fixed by tradespeople in the local community. So we're helping connect the demand and the supply within a community. And I think that's great because rather than going to some big faceless corporation, 
you know, we're actually just putting people in touch with one another and and and, and helping them to to help each other. And and I think that community spirit is a core pillar of our kind of our brand and, and our and our company's um, beliefs. Um, we're we're looking to in everything we do, we're looking to try and support communities. So from you know from, from things like sponsoring local grassroots football, helping give you know kids access to to, to sport and sporting equipment, etc. Um, looking at any kind of give backs we do to be community focused so that they're small but visible um, uh, improvements to, to the local community in, in, in whatever the way that can be. Uh, and we're also looking at rolling out something um, where we're actually giving back to the community. So people who are less um, less fortunate, maybe unable at the time that something goes wrong to fix their own central heating, say in the middle of winter. You know, a proportion of our um, income will be diverted towards providing those services for free to make sure that the most vulnerable are supported by Just Fix. Well, that is uh, fabulous, and I think that's uh, a great thing. I think that principles around community, I think, are so important too. And when I think about tradespeople and that whole sector, reputation and trust. Um, means a lot, it seems to me, and it would do to those sorts of communities. And I was wondering, how do you grapple with that question of trust with tradespeople? Because I would imagine that most people have had some very good experiences with tradespeople, others less so. Um, and you, it's very hard, it seems, in some respects, to be able to trust sort of review sites or comments that people may have led because you're not entirely sure sometimes of the veracity of those. Obviously, there are some external bodies that go out and verify particular tradespeople or, or organizations. So how do you deal with that question of trust with your uh, with your fixers? Um, uh, do you go through any sort of verification process? How do you make sure that they're of the right caliber f- to serve the, the community that you want to support? Yeah, it's it's a huge area, and obviously trust is kind of hard to earn and easy to lose. Um, and I'm sure we've all had experiences with tradespeople who aren't necessarily fantastic. You know, and there's a, a, a wide spectrum of of you know how good or bad uh, someone's experience with a tradesperson can be. Um, and, and one of the kind of opportunities that we see as Just Fix is to try and um, help people feel much more confident in their booking of a tradesperson because when you engage just fix you're engaging just fix we're not just a conduit to you know joe blogs the local plumber we're not just putting you in touch with him we're we're actually taking on the job ourselves just fix are the principal in the contract and 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 we're taking on the liability for that work we're guaranteeing all work for 12 months and it's down to us to to send a decent quality tradesperson to do the work. And if for whatever reason that tradesperson doesn't do the job uh, as well as we would have hoped or they're in any way falling short of our standards, we'll put it right at no additional charge to the customer. So by doing that, hopefully we can build trust in Just Fix the brand rather than it just being kind of diluted and disseminated across millions and millions of of, of individual brands underneath the Just Fix umbrella. Just Fix is the one who, who takes on the work and if, if for whatever reason, whoever we send around doesn't do it right, we'll, we'll put it right and no additional charge. Um, and, and as part of that, there is stringent onboarding criteria and continual monitoring of the quality of our fixes. So 
in order to be on our platform, a fixer has to go through bank-level KYC checks to verify their identity. They have to upload their qualifications. Um, they have to prove they've got public liability insurance. Um, and um, w- when they go around someone's house, we, we provide a photograph on the app. And if, if the fixer doesn't look like the photograph on the app, the customer's encouraged not to um, not to take them in. Uh, and, and kind of the analogy I use is, you know, it's 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 like using an Addison Lee taxi versus an unlicensed minicab. You know, if you if you're like inviting someone into your home, you want to feel confident that you know they're not a bad actor. Uh, and so, by going through Just Fix, you can have additional confidence that the person coming around is who they say they are. They've been checked, and there are checks and balances in place to to ensure that everything is you know is done to the right standard. That's great. Um, and and in terms of uh, the makeup of Just Fix and your board. It seems like you've recruited some pretty good people onto your executive team. And I was wondering, you know, based on your sort of previous experience um, and and obviously your experience now in trying to get everything right, how you get and start assembling the right people to be on a board. You know, what sort of advice would you give an entrepreneur in terms of trying to get people who have the right fit with where you want to go with the business? Like, how did you? get the right people on board for where you wanted to take the platform and the business? So I guess I'm fortunate in that through my career, I have um, developed a fairly good network. So, you know, I know lots of good people and I've I've been very fortunate to work with some very talented people over the years. Um, So, you know, most of the people on my team are people I've, I've come to know through, through my previous career. Um, Team is a, is everything. Obviously, you know, I, I'm just one person. Yeah, I've got a vision, and 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 um, hopefully people can follow me on on that journey. But ultimately, I need people around me who can execute on that vision with me. Uh, and certainly, if you're raising money in the early stage, you know, really for a pre-seed fundraise, the investors are buying into the team. They're buying into the founders. Um, and they're buying into the wider team as well because you don't have a lot else to show other than your vision, your strategy, and and your track record of having done it in the past. So you know it's important to assemble a good team. On on the flip side, though, I would say um, you don't want to necessarily rush out there and get too many people on board, and 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 you know um, all of a sudden find yourself with a huge board. And and lots of advisors and non-execs who aren't necessarily going to add add value and and could potentially even slow you down. Um, and I'd also say that you know as has has been the case in every company I've run so far. You know the team that gets you here may not be the team that gets you there. So you need to be able to refresh that team um, at the right point in in order to ensure you're always got the, the right people around you. So yeah, it's. Um, it's important, but I'd say don't go out and just get loads of people for the sake of it, just to improve your slides on on, on your pitch deck, um, and, and and continually kind of monitor the team and, and and try and bring on the best people for for the phase that you're in. Thanks. I think that's that's, that's very good advice. Um, and interestingly, you've used crowdfunding to raise investment, which uh, I think is something that probably a lot of our listeners want to, to hear a bit more about. What was that process like? And what do you think the benefits and drawbacks are of engaging in uh, something like crowdfunding? 
Well, that, it's really interesting because um, I'm. I don't. I don't know whether I would do it again if I if I had the whole the whole time again. I'm I'm torn. Genuinely, I, I don't know. It's not a case of me politely saying I wouldn't. I'm, I'm kind of fifty fifty on the whole subject. Um, so I think anyone should know going into it that crowdfunding is hugely time consuming, um, and um, often you don't actually end up raising very much money through kind of fresh crowd as it were the majority of the investors that come to you through a crowdfunding campaign are people within your network so it does allow you to democratize the investment opportunity it allows people who you know maybe wouldn't be interested in investing say 25k uh, but might be interested in investing 250 pounds or two and a half k um, it gives them the opportunity to invest which is great um if you're a consumer-facing product like we are, then every investor is a potential advocate, a potential customer. So that's that's a, a huge positive as well. Um, but don't underestimate how much effort's involved in getting it over the line. Um, you've got to do a lot of outreach, a lot of phone calls for sometimes quite small investment checks. And then, you know, the work doesn't stop once you've raised the money. Um, Cedars or Crowdcube, um, we'll we'll have a nominee, um, which which you know the, the shareholders will sit behind, but that they, they will they will insist on certain things in the in the shareholders agreement, like investor consent, for example. Um, so they're with you forevermore, and you know we'll want to have a say on certain matters. And you think to yourself, well, for the small amount of money that I actually got from that campaign, versus the amount of effort involved and the ongoing. Um, you know, aggravation that it potentially causes, was it really worth it? I'm not sure. I'm genuinely not sure. Um, ask me in a couple more years' time and uh, I might have a different view. Yeah, and I think that's a very honest sort of appraisal of the situation. I think many of our listeners will probably take a lot from that. Um, and, and one thing that just moving sort of back to the principles of what you're trying to achieve is that there seems to me anyway that there's this interesting tension dichotomy between these concepts around having this new technology and an established community. So the idea of you've got a technology platform that's fast moving and then the idea of a very established community. So there's, I guess, a tension between bringing new form of technology to an established community. And then you're also trying to balance the, the, the challenge, it would seem, of a, a keeping a local feel to what is essentially a, a sort of a national offer, offering. So there seem to be lots of different um, challenges there. And, and I was wondering how you try and manage that. In, 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 and if, they, if indeed that's right, whether you see them as actually being very complementary, you may, you may see it otherwise. I'd be just interested to know your thoughts. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, everything that, well, the vast majority of what we're doing does take place at, at a local level, level uh, at, a, at a hyper-local level. Um, and yes, we are trying to build uh, a national, indeed an international brand. You know, we've got aspirations to be um, global. Um, I don't see any reason why this thing can't go across Europe and the States and, and beyond once we get the model right. Um, but I think there are so many things that work at a hyper-local and a global level. Um, I think it's kind of fine. Um it's important to 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 stay focused on where we're delivering value and who our customers are. You know, we've got two sets of customers. The fixers are our customers as much as the the, the person who requires a 
a service are. And as long as we stay true to wanting to deliver a fantastic service to both sides of that marketplace um, and deliver value at, at all times, um, I don't think I don't think one kind of conflicts with the other. I appreciate you need to look look at it through two lenses, um, but uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of used to that. You know, running a company, you're often having to go micro macro all the time, and it's very easy to kind of you know find yourself in the weeds and sometimes we've just got to take a step back and look at the bigger picture again. So it's, yeah, I think it's, it's just, it's just half of the course really. And so you talked just now about the, the ambition potentially being able to roll this out as a, a an international venture. So, and that seems to be the, the big picture ambition. Um, so what's next do you think for you and the future of just fix? So how, how you see things going over maybe the next 12 months, 24 months and, and beyond. So 2024 is a big year for us. Uh, 2023 has been tough, you know, for a- anyone who's been in the startup community, um, would would attest to the fact obviously access to capital has been a lot harder to come by in the last year and a bit since various macroeconomic events rising interest rates etc you know a lot of investors have been sitting on their hands and, and waiting to see what happens with the economy and lots of you know uh well-funded and ostensibly um decent shaped uh, startups have actually uh, unfortunately gone by the wayside this year and i am proud of the fact that we've kept going and I think it's a testament to the team and it's a testament to, you know, our experience in having run businesses before and being, you know, a bit more kind of hardened entrepreneurs rather than just kind of the classic from the classic startup mold. Um, so I, I'm, I'm proud of the fact we've rolled with the punches this year and we're actually finishing the year in a really strong place. And very much I'm focused on planning now for 2024 doing our budgets, doing our growth projections, and, and, and I intend 2024 to be a really big year for us in terms of growth. Um, going nationwide, so we went nationwide a couple of months ago now, um, and you know that's a big step forward for us. There's obviously a lot more potential um, across the whole of um, the UK. Um, so it's about building more liquidity in our marketplace, getting more supply side and more demand side. Um, and just generating more sales uh, month on month across the next 12 months. And through that process, alongside that process, building the brand, which is another huge um, kind of element to, to our story, which is, you know, people buy brands, people fall in love with brands, they, they, they become loyal to brands. Um, and the opportunity here is to build a brand that's a household name. I want Just Fix to be the first name on people's lips when something goes wrong around the home. I think there is a huge opportunity right now to become that that brand, to become synonymous with rapid home maintenance. And I'm hoping that my experience in technology and marketing can help us accelerate the growth of that brand and occupy a place in people's minds as we get into the second half of 2024. I'd like to think that we can get Just Fix on everyone's radar across the UK. Well, thank you very much for that, Adam. It sounds like you've got a a busy 12 months at least ahead of you, um, and it seems like it is an exciting time for the business, and I wish you every success in in doing that. Um, And I wanted to thank you very much for your time today and your valuable insights, which I'm sure 
there, there are lessons in there that are, can apply across multiple different business sectors and in various different ways to the entrepreneurs that we have as, as listeners. So I wanted to say thanks again. Um, that's all we've got time for for now. But uh, I would like to encourage listeners to make sure that you're following our Mo Founders LinkedIn page and also look out for more Mo Founders podcast events and information. There'll be plenty more coming your way in 2024. Thank you so much, Adam, and thank you everyone for joining us. Please make sure to subscribe to the MoFo Perspectives podcast so you don't miss an episode. If you have any questions about what you heard today or would like more information on this topic, please visit mofo.com slash podcasts. Again, that's mofo, M-O-F-O dot com slash podcasts.